Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Gazzazi, and today we are joined by the brilliant Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, where he offers his critical thoughts on the UK COVID situation and the COVID vaccine clinical trials. Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is a long-standing NHS GP. He's a hospital doctor and a heart disease specialist. Given the timing of this recording, the 8th of December, the day Matt Hancock, the beloved Matt Hancock, pegged as V-Day, effectively marking the world's first administration of COVID-19 vaccine here in the UK, it was only right we double-click into vaccines, the clinical trial process and the general state of medical research. And I could think of no one better to help us dissect matters relating to medical research than Malcolm Kendrick, who is a master at pulling apart clinical trial data and their designs to spot issues and manipulative omissions. He's made a career out of doing this, having authored a popular medical blog under his name, as well as critical books on cholesterol, heart disease, and the process of doctoring medical data. And if you are keen on all things nutritional science and optimal health through diet, then you surely would have heard of Malcolm already. He's a sought after speaker, an advocate for developing metabolic health with low carb, real food diet formats, and a well-respected voice across the medical and nutritional communities, in part for his refreshing non-consensus thinking across some really hot areas of medicine. So, given Malcolm's clinical experience with COVID patients, his exposure to people with low cardiometabolic health, and his comfort in calling out issues with medicine and medical research, his voice desperately needs to be heard across the population. During our conversation, we dig deep into the manipulation of clinical data for profit or policy gain, be it the COVID data, the vaccine trial data, or the general approach to medical research funded by big pharmaceuticals. We get into the COVID vaccine trials themselves, the death of science in 2020, and the concerns ahead for science unless drastic action is taken. And lots, lots more. Honestly, this conversation, this episode, truly is a compelling high-impact insight that will help you up-level your critical thinking skills as it relates to medical research, and perhaps help you or others refrain from being so faithful to the religion of science. As always, guys, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of the episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a quick five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this adaptation episode of us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do make sure to check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey, an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy the no-holds-barred clinical and scientific insights on COVID, vaccines, and medical research with the one and only Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. 
Hey, Malcolm. Welcome on the show. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. On oh. this wet, wet day in Macclesfield. <laughs> well, I, I somehow, the, the fog has lifted down here. It's, it's slightly uh, slightly down south. And um, we've got a beautiful sunny day, which is a rarity. <laughs> well, I, I haven't got one of them. Sorry. But never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, um, I've held you in great respect and I've ha- you've you've grabbed my attention for many years, Malcolm. Um, what I love about you is that you have frontline exposure to the burdens of human health by working within the UK medical establishment. Yet you're clearly not institutionalised, and you have a deep scientific, critical thinking ability about yourself, dialed up to eleven. So I, I love the fact that we can have a conversation. I think people are going to be able to respect and relate to because you've got the various certifications to say, hey, I'm I'm able and willing to speak about this. But I also appreciate the fact that you're, you don't hold your, your punches and you're willing to call out medical scandal and you're willing to call out misinformation or propaganda as it relates to the medical establishment and things that people know or don't know, whether it be about medicine or nutrition. So I just want to say humbly that I appreciate you, everything that you've done through your career today, the books you've written, the blogs you put together, uh, the broad shoulders in which you've uh, uh, you've clearly had to have because there has been some back and forth between you and those that want to close or narrow your dissenting opinion. Um, so thank you from me, thank you from the community, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. Well, thanks for all those uh, very uh, <laughs> overwhelming thoughts. Uh, I just do what I do and... Uh, I like to think that people just like to hear um, somebody trying to say what they think is correct uh, because so much information now is filtered really badly, I think. So it, it's just an attempt to try and cut through cut through stuff, which I, I've, I've, is my self-appointed role in life. Yeah, and you do it well. You do it well. And this year has been no exception, right? So you've shown communication leadership during this year, the year of COVID-19. Um and I think it's that critical and kind of scientific leadership that I'd like to leverage today in this episode. I know you could talk about many things. And prior to COVID-19, you were talking about many things, heart health, metabolic health. And I know you could speak elegantly about those. We're not going to touch on that today, though. Uh, maybe that would be a part two. Today, I think it's pressing that we speak about COVID-19. I've got a few questions. I do want to double click into the vaccines, uh, given this is the 8th of December, V-Day, as Matt Hancock has, <laughs> has declared it. And we've had the first doses of the vaccines into the arms of our elderly. So it would be remiss of us to not offer some opinion, scientific, logical, and biological opinion. So are you up for that? Yeah, well, I am. Um, uh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully we can, uh, we can cover some bits without um, it coming across hyperbolic or conflatory. Um, okay, so why don't we get things started with you telling us a little bit more about your education, vocation, and areas of clinical specialism, Malcolm? Yeah, well, I'm, um, vocation-wise, I trained in uh, medicine at Aberdeen University many years ago. Um, uh, became a general practitioner. Frankie, uh, I hate to think how long ago that was. And um, I, I work in I've worked in general practice in uh, medical 
profession for a number of years. Uh, got a specific interest really in um, in uh, heart disease or cardiovascular disease, which I've written widely about, and um, probably known to some people as holding slightly contradictory views on um, mainly on the not not on everything, obviously uh, medicines. <laughs> I always like to say to people, I, I agree with most of of medical practice that there are areas where there are, are serious errors going on, in my opinion, and that, that's always the case. Sort of ironically, we're told that um, in medical school, 50% of what we learn will, will be found to be wrong. Um, and yet, if you try to say, well, I think I found at least 1% of the 50%, everyone comes down on you like a ton of bricks and says, what do you mean? You know, so it's uh, slightly ironic, but uh, now I'm currently working uh, I'm a general practitioner, but I'm working mainly in a hospital environment with elderly people. Um, and because of that, in fact, uh, very highly exposed to COVID, uh, 36 patients that I was involved in looking after died um, in the first wave uh, of, of COVID. Uh, so, so I'm well, very well aware of what, what's going on in the, in the environment around us. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, that was going to be a question. Have you been exposed? clinically to COVID-19 patients. Maybe you could double click a little bit there for us, if you don't mind. Um, my first question was going to be about what is COVID-19 clinically and how does it differ from flu and pneumonia? So could you maybe give us your experience of that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, in some in some cases, I don't know for sure because early on we don't know if people were dying of COVID because Nobody was getting swabbed, and unless you went into hospital, you weren't getting swabbed. But we did see, I saw a number of patients who, who were unusual in that they seemed quite well, um, except they just started to go off. And when you did things like check their oxygen, uh, you can just do as an oxygen probe to see what their saturation levels of oxygen are. Normally, they should be about 96 to 100%. And anybody under about 90% starting to struggle, under 80% is straight to hospital. We were seeing people who were showing up figures of 70%, 65%, and looking at them and thinking, but you look okay otherwise, which is just sort of unheard of. So there's clearly something weird going on with these patients. And then I watched one or two die within 10 minutes, just die uh, while the ambulance was on the way, um, which is a you know, I've watched a lot of people die in my my medical career. Uh, uh, there's there's the sudden death where people have a heart attack or stroke, bang, and then there's gradually dying, and that that can take days, weeks, sometimes. But but these people were quite well, seemed quite lucid, and and then they were suddenly gone. So I never thought that this was um, a myth that there is such a thing as COVID nineteen. How many people it's affected? Difficult to say, but but clearly. You know, on the front line, we were seeing this happening. Um, people were just just looking strange compared to normal deaths, if you like. So I think uh, there was clearly something happening in their lungs. Clearly, something going on that we we hadn't really seen before. I mean, you can see these things with pneumonia. I've seen people with pneumonia, and they get lung problems, and they get you know the the, the things that we say now where people are dying of heart attacks and strokes or kidney failure with COVID. You say, well, yes, people died of these things and still die of these things with influenza and secondary pneumonias. It just it seemed to be the presentation was was definitely different. So so this is clearly was a new a new a kid on the block, very definitely that arrived. And I must say, in the first wave, it was all over the place. In the second wave, 
we're seeing uh, personally seeing hardly anyone and almost everyone is at a positive swab has really been asymptomatic so, so there's a very very different pattern that i'm seeing now than i saw in march and april in fact if i didn't look at the news and they said it was going on i wouldn't know it was going on mm. personally but obviously that's very dependent uh, you know you can't use your own personal view to say it's gone because it clearly hasn't gone away yet i think that's an important point it's i i find that people use the past to describe the current uh, and no more so with with this right we are talking about um an experience or an anticipated experience that's going to be the same as when this epidemic broke and um you're saying you haven't seen it uh, the data suggests that it's different um and obviously the the expression of disease um i think few people very few people know people currently that are undergoing serious covid infection albeit we know lots of people that have been isolated and have got positive tests and may have a cold um yeah. i have a couple of people in my family who've just had a cold and they got tested covid positive but only a couple in the household and it was rather strange they said they lost their sense of smell for a couple of days and they're back to normal so they're young in all fairness so maybe that's part of the story um but i do think everyone seems to be leveraging the the anecdote of someone who went in an a and experience it was, it was horrific and trying to project that onto the uh, and, and and inflate that risk potential for everyone and describing this current period in december as being the same as march and it clearly isn't so thank you for offering some clarity um you say it looks and expresses itself a little different from influenza infection and secondary pneumonia one of the things I found a little striking or a little odd, um, I spent a lot of time on the data side of things with ONS data and getting FOIs back and so forth. And one of the things I noticed is there seems to be a lot of COVID death that does not include pneumonia on the death cert. Now, this may, is probably my naive understanding of coroner reports or death certificates, but it, I would have assumed that um, COVID-19 um, manifests itself principally as a respiratory condition and that manifestation will at some point knock on a door of pneumonia perhaps ARDS is that a wrong conclusion to make well I think it, it's um it's it, like all diseases they present in all sorts of different ways I mean it's very difficult to be hard and fast but um the um you know death certification is is, is a far less precise thing than I think most people have suddenly become aware. You mean you just write what stuff on a death certificate and that's that's it? And you go, well, it's always sort of been the case. I mean, the hospitals are slightly different. Younger people is different. If anyone's under, say, about 60, people are generally making a bigger effort to say what it is that's actually happened. I mean, initially when this came along, if you suspected someone had COVID and they died, you could put COVID-19 as the primary cause of death whatever their symptoms were really so i mean we were definitely over reporting and possibly under reporting simultaneously so the statistics themselves are extraordinarily dubious i mean just take you back there's another condition called um called sepsis which um mm -hmm. sort of hit the headlines about four or five years ago ish in that it's always been around but it, it suddenly was a huge everybody's dying of sepsis kind of um explosion within the nhs so 
we were all asked to look out for it was all this sepsis screening and sepsis six and sepsis this and sepsis that. And I just looked at the statistics and, the, you know, the death rate from sepsis went up over 40% in one year. So, well, no, it didn't. It just means that more and more people stuck it on the death certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, because with this increased awareness, then you should have been less people dying of sepsis than before. So you have to be aware that death certification can often follow trends and um, and it can become rather fashionable. So it is not a precise science. So, you know, at the moment we have this thing saying, well, they say it on the BBC, but they don't seem to understand what they're saying, which is, you know, today 300 people died within 28 days of having a COVID positive test. Well, and, and the other thing is, of course, that they then say admissions to hospital with COVID have gone up. Well, in fact, within admissions to hospital, if you were admitted to hospital without COVID, you then get a swab within the hospital that says you've got COVID. And that goes down as a hospital admission, mm-hmm. a COVID positive hospital admission, even if they weren't admitted with COVID. So the statistics have become, unfortunately, almost meaningless. I mean, I, I kind of pride myself in trying to work out what medical statistics mean. But within COVID, I'm so, I, I've just about given up. I said, this statistic could mean something or it could mean nothing. So take it at the most extreme example. Somebody who uh, just happens to have a COVID test, they say they're 80 and they've got five different multimorbidities, they have a COVID test as part of the at-risk group and they're found to have COVID. They have no symptoms of COVID, there's nothing to do with COVID. You know, five days later, they have a heart attack. Say, well, let's say they have a stroke or, or whatever. Um, and then they, they're admitted to hospital. And then two weeks later, they die. They will be down as a COVID death. That will be part of the statistics. That will be one of the 60,000. COVID may have played, in fact, almost certainly played absolutely no part. They may have had no symptoms of COVID. But they will be recorded as a COVID death. So once you're into this world, you're into like, well, these statistics no longer have any meaning. They they are completely without meaning. And therefore, w- what are we to make of it? You know, especially if a number of the COVID tests, positive tests could be well over 50%, up to nine out of 10 positive um, swabs could be false positives. So we're false positively diagnosing people. They go into hospital, they die, and they're called a death from COVID. It's, it's completely nonsensical. And, you know, there are people, very, very high, high ranking people uh, in, in the world of epidemiology who just said, you've just sort of given up, really, and said, we've no idea what is going on. It's meaningless. Well, we've simultaneously got incredible amounts of information about something we've never had any information about before. Like, there's many citizen, you know, um, statisticians or people just pouring through data they never knew existed before no one touched the ons from last year and now everyone's very familiar so we've become acutely aware myopically aware of this one disease process but more importantly the expression of it which is this testing um and as you rightly say we 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 lean on that because the government keeps leaning on that and uh, you know the reporting dashboards lean on that data and i pride myself on trying to tease out the truth in in data but i'm struggling as you say because there are so many ways in which there's so many questions of the data that can't be answered unless the government choose to answer them such as if we just created a case definition which included 
medical ex- or clinical expression of the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. To have that plus a positive test would resolve much of these issues. But for some reason, you know, nine months, 10 months down the line, we're still unwilling to do that. It's, it's, it strikes me oh, as yeah, most well, odd. Yes, well, I think one of the, one of the things that I, um, I uh, have learned from analyzing medical data for far too much for my own, um, my, my own uh, sanity is that the, the most important things in any clinical study, the things I look for first, um, well, I can't look for them first, but they, the things I, I'm, I'm most interested in first are the things that are not mentioned in any study. What is not being mentioned? What is not being said that could be said or should be said? So, for example, if I look at cardiovascular studies, the first thing I look for is overall mortality. In other words, the chances of dying of anything, not specific mortality rates, because someone can tell you that the mortality rate from, say, heart disease has gone down by 30%, which can sound impressive. But if you look at the overall figures, there has been no change. So they're dying more of something else. Mm. In other words, whatever you're doing is really having no effect but it will be that 30% reduction that is highlighted as being the only thing of importance. And, you know, it's like the hand of the Baskervilles or the dog that didn't bark in the night. Looking for things that you don't even know might exist is quite tricky. Yes. Because, how because do you prove you're, a negative, being, right? Well, how do you prove a negative? So in this case, I'm looking for, you're looking for data like what is, um, you know, how are we actually diagnosing COVID-19? How are we actually diagnosing that someone's died of COVID-19? You cannot find these data. It is not available. It is completely just, it's not, it's not there. So, so, so I know that that something, a game is being played. When that happens, a game is being played. What's the game? We're trying to, we're trying to talk up the, the, the amount of damage that COVID-19 is doing. Why, why is anybody trying to do that? Well, because we've taken these ridiculous steps that have cost whatever it is, 400 billion, 500 billion. We're killing people in old folks' homes and we've killed maybe 20 to 30,000 people who died in, in, in nursing homes because they discharged patients with COVID back into them, knowing that they had COVID at the time. These are, I'm not just making these facts up, these are well-established facts. We, you know, we're not, we're, we're, there's, there's more child abuse going on, there's more suicides going on, there's more depression, people are losing their jobs. So, you know, the, the other side are trying to say, well, of course, we're having to do all this because look how deadly this condition is. So I believe that the game that being played is basically for those who believe in lockdown and think we have to do it, they constantly try to impress with the severity of COVID and how absolutely deadly it is and how many hundreds of thousands of people it's killing and how many hundreds of thousands would die if we weren't doing what we were doing. So it's really a form of justification mm. of their actions. And that, that, in my opinion, is the game that is being played. And everyone's just kind of sort of going along with it. And, um, you know, this means that the data themselves, you'll never know. We'll never know. You can't go back now and never know whether that death certificate was valid or not. Because you can't dig them up, or most of them are being cremated anyway, and say, no, they didn't. I've looked through their ashes, and they definitely didn't die of COVID-19. I mean, we can't do that now. So it, it, it's incredibly frustrating for someone like yourself or myself who like to know what, what the data really say, and we can't, and we won't, and we, I don't think we ever will now. Mm, I think to, to layer on that, we also have um, the, the person 
or the government are marking their own, their own homework. <laughs> we've got yes. we've got an institution that's or a, a, an organization, a set of people that are providing the testing infrastructure, uh, the personnel, um, the reporting, uh, the medication, the therapies, providing everything. And you might say that's great. I mean, what would we do without them? <laughs> but the problem I have is, you know, there is there's no independent adjudic- adjudicator, and we have the likes of MR, MRHA. We'll get onto them in a bit when we speak about vaccines. But how independent? Are they really? When you look at the conflicts of interest in the individuals that work there and their connection with the government and the shared ideology, quite frankly, when you share an ideology, you seem to be able to twist and bend reality to match that. And that's what I see happening. I think it's opportunism combined with ass covering and a combined universal ideology that seems to be permeating across the whole scientific community. It feels like that. And, um, Something I was pondering on, and maybe you can you can give me your perspective. I look at science, generally speaking, and I look at it as something of the crown, right? If you if you follow science back way back when, it really was you know the rich and the crown, the the royalty that could afford for science to even be funded in the first place. And I feel there still seems to be a deep institutionalized establishment connection of science, whether it be uh, grants, whether it be salaries, whether it be just general support um, is mostly funded in one way, shape or form from government or corporation. And therefore, when you step back and you think like, how honest is science? Uh, At least this year, Malcolm, I look at science and I go, you know, there is a lot of shades of grey here. There is a lot of bias. And there's a lot of intent to try and make things look successful. And I know you've written about this significantly. But as you think about the scientific and medical community in 2020, how do you feel about them? How do you feel about your your community? Do you feel that people are doing the best they can with what they know and what they have? Do you feel that there's kind of self-censorship? Or do you think there's flawed ideologies? Like what do you, if you had to describe the medical community, because you're clearly a contrarian uh, in your thoughts, if you consider your dissenting opinion against what seem to be the majority that think this is appropriate, necessary, and and proportionate. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that's an enormously huge question. <laughs> so, several volumes of philosophy have been written on it, but um, uh, in, in five minutes, uh, I'll, I'll give you the answer. I, I think um, it's uh, there is always this enormous, um, you know, when people talk about about peer pressure and say, "Oh, children are, are terribly subject to peer pressure," I would say, "No, they're they're just practicing because when they get to be older, peer pressure will become the absolute determinant of absolutely everything they do." I think it's uh, there's a huge amount of um, of, of um, confirmation bias that goes on, different deferral to authority, um, expertise is is you know there's a several ones now desperate to say oh look all the experts are correct thank goodness for experts again I say uh, I'm more of a believer in, uh, in David Sackett who um, you may or may not have heard of but he he's considered the, the, one of the fathers if not the father of evidence based medicine. I uh, came from um, at Master University in, in Canada, a really great guy. I met him a few times, you know, one of the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, in about 2000, I think it was, wrote in the BMJ saying, I am retiring from being an expert in evidence-based medicine because I'm too influential. People pay too much heed to what I'm saying. I am interfering with the progress of this um, entire field. 
So I, I'm not going to write, I'm not going to peer review, I'm not going to lecture, I am going to keep completely quiet. And and he did. And he also thought that all experts should be should be forcibly retired after three years because they need they were just in, inhibiting progress, they were interfering with new ideas and they should be essentially um, you know, told you've been an expert for three years, that's all you get, now it's time to go. And I think uh, what he recognizes, I think um, um, uh, Max Planck, who, who was the, the famous physicist who actually published Einstein's papers at the turn of the last century on special relativity, and, and one of his quotes is, science, science progresses one funeral at a time. And all, all these people are saying is essentially the same thing, which is that, that there is a hierarchy. Uh, and although it's, it's, it's not a clear hierarchy, it's very clear who are the top dogs, who are the, who are the bosses, if you like, and who are the people who will control the narrative. So in the States, we have Fauci, who's treated as if his every pronouncement is handed down on a tablet of stone. You know, we have Chris Whitty here, we have... Patrick Valance. They're just people, but their pronouncements are, are, are treated with, with extraordinary deference. You know, and science should never be deference. Science should always be, should always be in flux, you know. And, and, and what we've got here, the problem is the juxtaposition between government and politicians want to have an answer and they want to be right. And science should never allow itself to get drawn into, you know, the, at the start of this, we had we are following the science. And I think I wrote a rather Mickey taking blog, mm -hmm. sort of talking about the science, you know, sitting, having a nice cup of tea and, um, and occasionally telling everyone what they should do. There is no such thing as the science. If you think there is, you're not a scientist. You know, so we've, I think it's always been this way. I mean, I think medical, medical science specifically, particularly, is not science because it is very much about consensus. It's very much about guidelines. It's very much about important and esteemed key opinion leaders defining exactly what is and what is not correct. And and uh, unfortunately, you know that we have ended up in a situation where where the sort of this deference to this authority um, has become incredibly inhibitory to to new thinking, new ideas. And um, but, you know, the, I think this is, you know, as I say, you could go on forever, but I think it is a combination of a whole series of factors. And when you're in a crisis situation, as we're in now, there's also this thing of where well, you mustn't rock the boat. We must support what's being done. We cannot stand up and say this is ridiculous. You know, it, otherwise, you know, it's like, well, you we're in a war here. You know, you, you careless talk costs lives or something. And to an extent, there is an element of that, and I understand that. It's not ridiculous to say that we can't just have 500 people running around all saying completely different things and no one has any idea what's going on. But we've gone too far the other way. It's become absolutely concreted in. You know, we do have, we have a situation whereby, you know, the government has said anyone pronouncing anything at all anti-vaccine, um, you know, will be silenced and removed from and maybe fined. Who knows, might be thrown in jail. So, you know, this is the this is a very worrying situation. I mean, yes, you don't want to run around doing damage by saying silly things, and 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 you have to somehow or other get this under control. But we are absolutely in a in a, in a straitjacket currently, which is 
which is, um, you know, where has science gone? Science has gone. There is no science currently. It might come back, but for the moment, there is no science. Yeah, no, I, I concur. It's it's very worrying because we, you know, we've, uh, we're, we're quickly becoming, you know, a world of atheists uh, and non-believers, yet uh, in its replacement, where you know we've got the religion of science and the religion of vaccines in it uh it's just as much faith-based um under this you know guise of being somehow logical and truthful but um we're clearly finding that there's it isn't just truth that's dri- driving uh the intent and the messaging at the moment um yeah well let, it's it's uh, you know, as gk if you want to, the quote for that one gk chesterton very sexist quote, of course, but he said, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing, he starts to believe in everything. <laughs> very true. That's <laughs> exactly what we're seeing. I love that. Um, let me play devil's advocate, though. Um, I know that you've written about this extensively, which is you know, a worrying trend or epidemic of declining health in our country and other um, strong Western cultures such as the U.S., so we know we have a problem of health, um, host health, and we know that host health is a primary risk factor um, for infectious diseases, one of which being COVID-19. Yes. So did we have any other option? Do we have any other options, do you think, given um, the bumpy terrain that we have, which is a lot of ill people, unnecessarily metabolically unwell individuals, could we have done it any other way without there being significant consequences? Well, I think there's a few things. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, um, I, know, I know where you're aiming with this, and, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, in fact, ironically, I was looking at um, the COVID risk factor um, sort of chart, if you have the exact term for it, and I just happened to be looking at the, the UK use a thing called Q-risk for cardiovascular disease, which is I'm not quite sure what the Q stands for. I think it's quantified risk. You know, it's on its third iteration. You can almost lay one on top of the other. You know, anything that's a risk for cardiovascular disease is a risk for COVID. It's, you know, being overweight, having diabetes, you know, um, previous heart, heart disease, and, you know, being of um, being of Asian origin, et cetera, et cetera, so being male. It, it, it's virtually a complete fit. So, yes, the, that, um, you know, COVID, although it's a respiratory condition, um, is clearly primarily uh, killing people who are at high metabolic cardiovascular, cardiometabolic health is poor, uh, and there are obviously reasons for this. But we could have, had we uh, said, well, one of the things that I've said to people is take lots of vitamin D, which uh, which I personally take, um, which, which can help. Um, obviously, there is reducing carbohydrate intake because that... that um, lowers your blood sugar and your blood insulin levels and improves your cardiovascular system. Uh, and that's beneficial. Vitamin C is also beneficial. It protects the endothelial lining in your arteries. And um, that's another thing that I take, although I can't take too much because um, it has a tendency to go through at very high speed if I mm. take more than a <laughs> gram. And, yeah. so I've got some people who say they take 10 grams a day and I think, Mm, <laughs> <laughs> but but you're you're talking about agency. You're talking about personal health, and I, yes. I I know why you're going there because that really is where the rubber meets the road. But as a leader, 
elite government leaders or business leaders, um, they don't like telling the truth, especially if it's ugly. And they want to be seen and they want to feel like they're controlling stuff. And that's exactly yeah. what we've seen. They've wanted to control this. So the problem is telling you to do those things and work out and not be overweight and you know not do this, this and that other and have good night's sleep and do that concurrently. Um, that, for some reason, because it requires effort on behalf of the individual you're telling uh, you know, you know, you're barking orders out. You know, the compliance is going to be low unless you can really ramp yeah. up your propaganda. So, what do they do in response to the difficulty of asking people to do difficult things? They ask them to do things that are seemingly simple, but are actually quite catastrophic in terms of the impact societally and actually perversely on their health. So, the point, yeah. uh, the point I, I, I was, I was kind of querying you on is, if you were, you know, on top, you know, on, on top of this heap of government leadership and you had to make a decision in March or April and you saw the worrying stats and the escalating numbers and you've, you've seen frontline that there is something going on here. Would you have done things differently? And then the second question to that is, given now what we know, would you be doing things differently now? As, as a, from a leadership, a legislative or policy-based approach? Well, I think being being pragmatic, there was terrific panic and sudden panic going on. So yes, do something. Um, I think that one of the problems was that um, China locked down because China can lock down because they can sort of shoot you if you don't obey their leadership and no one is going to do anything about that. And they claimed that they gained control over COVID by so doing. Um, and, you know, that became a, a model, didn't it? Mm. Um, then when it, Italy went mad next and um, and then the Italians said, oh, we're getting overwhelmed. Well, they weren't really getting overwhelmed. They were not. There was only one area, a small area of Italy where, the, where the, um, there weren't enough ITU beds and they'd just driven them, you know, had they gone, taken them into hospitals 40 miles down the road, they would have had enough ICU capacity. Um, but you can understand the panic. You can understand everyone started doing it. You can look at some countries. Japan didn't lock down um, at all, really. And um, Sweden didn't lock down very much. Um, the Peru in South America locked down by far the most and have had by far the most deaths from COVID in South America. Um, you know, you can't, but at the time, you, you know, this, you must do something. Mm. I can understand that they did it. I think if I'd been prime minister, I, I think it would have been very hard not not to do that at the start. Yeah, I think that that immediate response was was, well, we have to do something. We have to stop the spreading. We're being told that five hundred thousand people could die, you know, in the country, and and then the hospitals will be overwhelmed. And so, you know, under that kind of pressure, I mean, it's quite easy to snipe from the sidelines, I suppose, and say, well, that's ridiculous. Um, but I think most people can understand why they did it in March and April. Uh, May mostly as well. Uh, so yeah, but um, once that initial wave had gone and we were into late May and the, the, the numbers had gone down to virtually zero, you know, we should have stood back and said, well, what seems to have worked? What seems to be working? What are we doing? Why? Why? Why is it happening like this? You know. Um, so I think that the first wave, probably you can understand it, but the fact is that they they learned nothing from from that at all. Mm. 
you know, and they just said, right, well, that's our only our only weapon is lockdown, really, or various forms of lockdown. You know, they, they looked at Sweden. <laughs> well, masks, I mean, again, yeah. you know, the, there is this thing of, I mean, my motto, which I use quite often is, is, is don't just do something, stand there. And um, the problem for almost all of them, our politicians in the medical profession is, their motto is, do something. Something must be done. Mm. Let's do something. Um, oh, look, we did something. And then, and then they, 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 you know, post hoc justification. Well, that was a good thing to do. You know, there is no evidence that masks have any benefit whatsoever on the on the spread of COVID nineteen. Um, and I know very intelligent friends who, who 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 argue with me on this. I say, I said most of science and most of medicine has turned out to be counterintuitive. You know, you can look at a thing and say, well, that must be beneficial, and you can look at it and say, well. Very superficially, I mean, it, it's um, it's it's Canahan, not Canaman, isn't it? The fast thinking, slow thinking man. Um, that we, our our immediate response is fast thinking, an immediate fast thinking response. Let's do this. It's the obvious thing to do. It's common sense. Slow thinking is sitting, looking, and going right. Where's the evidence? What should we be doing? Takes a bit of time. You take the emotion out of the situation, and you sit and look at the evidence, and then you say, right, what what does seem to work? What is beneficial what should we be doing and what shouldn't we be doing you know and um and unfortunately we've been in a, a fast thinking inner chimp whatever fight or flight response since the start of this at, at no point has anyone with a brain sat down and gone right let's just start looking at what we think should work you know i did um i did uh, um you know i just there was a graph of the french cases which picked up again in eight, in August, and uh, I know because I was in France in August and had to self-isolate when I got back. Um, and uh, masks inside and out were introduced in, in, on August the 28th, at which point there was about 6,000 cases per day, uh, or 5,000, that sort of order. And from that point, the graph rose exponentially. And so you say, well, 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 if masks are having an effect, it can't really be much of an effect. So the country that's done worst for cases at that time was France, and they were all wearing, wearing masks all the time. And yet, and then people will say, oh, well, look, at, I know Japan didn't lock down, but they all wear masks. I said, well, well, if they had the same effect as it had in France, it would have been no effect. And you look at other countries that didn't wear masks and countries that did wear masks, and you can find no pattern. Because what science is about is looking a for patterns and then saying, can we contradict yeah. what we're saying? You know, it's not it's no good to say, oh, I can find ten countries where they wore masks and they had a very low rate of, of COVID. To which the correct answer is, all you need to do is find one country that wore masks that's got a very high rate of COVID, and you have contradicted your hypothesis. You know, and that's, that's science, how right? Science works. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's science. Yeah, that's that's our, that's trying to disprove your hypothesis versus find ways to confirm it, uh, which unfortunately isn't just the layman. You know, you'd think it's just the uninformed, uneducated, non-scientific mind that has and struggles with confirmation bias. But um, yes. we're clearly seeing it's rife scientifically, incredibly so. Um, and maybe this is a good pivot, Mal Malcolm, because I, I do want to spend the rest of the time or a bunch of it on vaccines. So. Yeah. I want to talk about the trials in particular. I know you've written a bit about this and you're clearly familiar 
with uh, you know the clinical trial process, broadly speaking. Um, yeah. Before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, let's just make sure it's clear for, you, for the audience. What's your ideological position on vaccines, generally speaking? I don't have an ideological position. Do you have... Okay, so what's your general general position on I, this technology, really biologics? Va- vaccines are, um, are, are, are uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical, effectively, in my opinion. Um, they Some of them appear to have been very beneficial. Some of them have had adverse effects. Some of them have very unpleasant adverse effects. Um, the... The primary problem I have with them is that they, they are, um, how can I put this exactly, is that they're not subject to the same level of scientific scrutiny of almost anything else that has ever existed. It is almost like if you use the word vaccine, then people say it must be good, mm. it must be beneficial, and it must have no adverse effects because it's a vaccine, which is just a completely ridiculous position to take with anything. So, I mean, how many, you know, randomized control trials have there been with vaccines? Um, some people would say none, you know. Have they, have, has anyone looked at the health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations? Well, I was reading a letter recently from the CDC that was in a reply from, you know, uh, um, somebody asking the CDC, have you ever done a trial of vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations to see what the overall impact of, of health is, which was released under a freedom of information. And the CDC came back eventually saying, we have never done such a trial. It would be unethical, is well, the no, statement. You can, you, can, you can do the study. You can say you don't, you don't need to not vaccinate people. You can just say we have a population of a billion children who've never been vaccinated, because there are quite a lot who don't get vaccinated. And we have a population of a million children who have been vaccinated. Um, what's the overall impact on their health? You know, has it been? Have there been downsides to this? Because unless you do a randomised study, you're always guessing. Uh, you know, by randomised, I mean you've got a, a number of people that you do something to, and you have another number of people that you don't do that thing to, and and all the other things are kept the same. Because if you change more than one variable, you can never really know which of the variables was the one that was important. So with vaccination, there's, there's just never been the sort of let's take 100,000 people and not vaccinate them and see what happens. That, that just doesn't happen. So we don't really know the overall benefit. I mean, it maybe it reduces, you know, a flu vaccine may reduce the risk of flu. Fine. But then it may increase the risk of dying of other things. It would be nice to know this, but we don't. I mean, there was a study done, several studies done in Africa on children given whooping the DTP, um, diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccination. And when they went back and looked at everything, not just whether they got diphtheria tetanus or pertussis, they found that the children who'd been vaccinated had an increased mortality rate. It was increased by between five to 10 times. So the vaccinated population, something had happened to them that made them more susceptible to dying of other things. Now, a 10 times increased mortality rate in a very young population is not a huge absolute figure, but it was still quite significant. And that's the sort of thing that if you were really interested, you'd say, well, let's check that. We really need to check that because we don't want to be doing harm to children. We want to be doing good to children. 
I mean, I've read these papers and they seem to be have been well well done and carried out. Yet the only reaction from you know the mainstream is this is data, it's been published. You can go on to you can even go into Google and find it if you want. Look, look up, <laughs> I think it's the Gambia, but it might be Burkina Faso, I can't remember which country it was. You can look up DTP vaccination, mortality, children, whatever, and you'll find it. All right. I, I, I'm not making this up. Now, I would say, OK, well, maybe the children that were vaccinated were iller in some way to start with. They had other problems, which is why they were chosen to be vaccinated. I'm sure they I'm pretty sure they looked at that. But the correct response to, to, to a study like this, if you have if you found this happened with, say, giving giving an antihypertensive treatment and actually more people were dying, it would be an immediate review. Everybody would jump on it. Everyone would look at it and go, well, goodness me, actually, we thought we were helping and we're not. You know, we had a study, I forgot the name of it, um, Accord, I think it was, but if I get that wrong, done in the States where they said, we're going to try and treat everyone with a high blood sugar level with, with medications. And what we're going to do is we're going to use as many medications as we can to bring the HbA1c, which is the measure of how much sugar you've got in your blood, down as much as possible. We're going to drive it down with medication. And the other arm, we're not going to do this. And the study had to be stopped because they found that by reducing the um, the blood sugar level, the, the most had the highest mortality. And I think it was increased by three or four hundred percent. So, um, you know, when something like that happens in other, any other area of medicine, people go, hold on. Well, let's just check here that we're not doing harm. When it comes to vaccination and you have a study that shows well, we've got a bunch of children here who seem to have been increased mortality rate with vaccination. The correct response would be, let's go and find out if that's really true. Let's open it up. Let's have a look at these children. Let's, let's check this really thoroughly because it's really important. But the response that we get is the people who write these papers are attacked, told they understand nothing of science. They lose their jobs. They are vilified. So, you know, that is not what you do. And vaccines are, are, are I'm not sure if they're exactly alone, they're probably just about, I think they're alone in the fact that you cannot criticize them. You, if you find a piece of negative information, you're told you're an anti-vaxxer or you're censored, the researchers run terrified of even mentioning it. So, you know, my problem with vaccination, and it's not ideological, it's scientific, is, look, we really need to know some things that we don't know. And can you please do the research to tell us these things? Because then I can be reassured, because currently I'm not reassured, because you will not do the studies, you will not release the data, and, and, and anyone trying to look into this area is attacked as though there's some sort of, you know, a terrorist group or something. So that's my my problem with it all is, is I'm I anti or pro vaccine. I'm neither. What I want is that it is treated as a branch of scientific research in which people can look at things, positive or negative, and not be fearful of the consequences of it, because that is exactly and precisely what science should not be. So that, if you like, is my position on the matter. Thank you, Malcolm. And I, I agree. I think there is there's there's definitely the church of vaccines isn't there there's this 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 idea this blind faith that we're going to treat them all homogeneously like vaccine it doesn't matter what the vaccine is we should trust it 
we should trust it yeah. because it's it's come down from it's the hand of God coming down to save us all um, <laughs> from from the evil from the invisible evil. I, I do I just find so many connections to kind of religious faith with vaccines because as you say you can't can't challenge it. You're a good person if you get vaccinated. You're a bad person if you don't. We're going to smear you if you talk uh, with a dissenting opinion. Yet I wouldn't take cancer meds if I don't need them. I wouldn't take diabetes meds if my blood sugar's fine. I wouldn't take Viagra if I don't need Viagra. I don't take paracetamol, ibuprofen, uh, you know, uh, statins, corticosteroids. I don't take this stuff unless I need it. And I look at each of those medications and I go, do I need it? What's the risk? Is there a benefit? What's my what's my circumstances now? And I have the comfort in knowing it's gone through rigorous testing and that manufacturer is liable if something goes wrong. So I have layers of, of analysis, layers of inspection. I have insert um, sheets. I can I can really evaluate whether I want to take the procedure or the medication. But for vaccines, we have to erase the individuality of them, different platforms developed at different times uh, to serve different needs, to look at their data. No, I shouldn't ask any questions. And in actual fact, I should look at vaccines as just one amorphous blob, that they're all the same. And to challenge one is to challenge all. It's nonsense. Yeah. It's absolute nonsense. And yeah, yeah. I, I get heated. And I, I, I would say, yes, I am anti-vaccination from the point of I'm anti the science of vaccines. Tell me and show me that I shouldn't, and I'll change and I'll soften my position. I think maybe we're in a similar position. But are there any vaccine technologies um, that for you are uh, more attractive or more interesting, or you think they may be more efficacious? So not specific ones like, say, the tetanus va vaccine versus you know yellow fever versus COVID-19, but more so um, adenovirus, recombinant, um, or purified yeah. protein, um, looking at mRNA, that kind of stuff. Is there a platform in particular you think, you know what, that's interesting, just from a biological standpoint, what it's trying to do, the mechanism it's trying to invoke, and just logically and clin clinically, I would be more confident with a vaccine that used this technology. Do you have any opinion either way? Well, one thing I've learned is that um, you're always going to be caught by surprise. I think hubris is... Um, is 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 in the line here and that we have this fantastic new technique that, that's being used with the Pfizer vaccine. I think anything that works. I mean, I remember at medical school, I was still, people won't understand the, the analogy probably that you must never give a calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker to the same patient. You know? um, um, and now it's it's kind of standard treatment um, because of the, the theoretical implications of what you were doing, right? As it turned out, that was wrong. You know, I've I've, I've read stuff. Uh, <coughs> I've been very interested in looking at the, the history of science, of medical sort of science and research and ideas, and watching ideas that were absolutely one hundred percent correct crumple into into dust when a new piece of information comes along. So I don't think there's any. I mean, yes, what you're trying to do with any vaccine is essentially the same thing. What you're trying to do is put something into the body in some way that the immune system will recognize as alien, an invader of some sort, and then will create a response against it to attack it. And at the same time, it will it will be educating, if you like, the, the, the T cells and memory cells 
sending them information to interest itself. I mean, it's a really complicated area, and, and I don't believe anyone fully understands it, which is why I'm always, well, I certainly don't fully understand it. But um, from what I've read, there's an awful lot of stuff that is not known. So essentially, you're trying to say to the body, here's an alien thing. We're giving it to you in a form that's not going to kill you. So we're going to attenuate the virus or a bit of the protein of the virus, or we're going to do it in some other way, or we're going to give you another virus that's a bit like this virus that, that will then get crossover recognition. You, then your memory cells will sit in your body. Next time the virus comes along, recognizes it very quickly so it can create immediately create antibodies and trigger the whole system to attack and kill it. So, you know, the fundamental basis of vaccination is is the same, however you technically go about it, I think. So I'm not, I, don't, I wouldn't say any any form of vaccine has got any particular, you know, you've got some that are live vaccines like polio, obviously they gave it to children that went through the, it went through the GI tract. It, it then came out the other side of the GI tract and infected other people who then got polio and um, died of it. So some of the vaccines are more risky than others. The HIV vaccine has never been made to work because some viruses don't respond the same way. Mm. So, you know, it's really suck it and see when it comes to this. But of course, the problem with the very current ones, the mRNA, messenger RNA vaccine, which is the, the Pfizer one and the, uh, is it Moderna? That's right. Um, Moderna one that are, is, is threatening to come out. These are new, a new way of operating in the human body. Never been done before. The, the, the theory is is very clever. You a little bit of um, RNA that, that that can't further replicate itself. Although I'm not entirely sure how they know this. Is it's got put inside a little sphere of lipids, and uh, and then when it gets into your body, the lipid sphere merges with your with your lipid membrane of your cell. So the mRNA gets inside your cell, then it wanders off and and uh, finds finds a thing called the ribosome, which is a specific um, protein manufacturing device factory locks into this and then that that um, ribosome starts creating more of that specific bit of the of the virus that then these are the bits that I would think well how does that then get out of the cell again because getting things in and out of cells is quite complicated but anyway and how does it move across the cell mm. to the cell member and all those kind of questions but anyway apparently it does Although, <laughs> we don't never, need to ask never, those questions <laughs> well I've never seen an explanation of how how that happens. Uh, I happen to be very interested in this area because for, for ages I've been looking at how cholesterol or LDL gets inside a cell or how it may get through a cell. Anyway. But, so you, you start looking into cell membrane and how they function and how they work and you think, gosh, this is all enormously complicated, beyond mind-bogglingly complicated stuff. you know. And, and this idea that things just enter cells and then just get out of cells again, it's kind of you know, it doesn't really work like that. But anyway, apparently that's what happens. So that in this case, the cell then starts manufacturing the spike protein and another protein that I can't remember what it is. They head for the surface of the cell, pop out of the cell in some as yet unspecified way. And the immune system then says, this is alien stuff. I'm going to attack it. And whilst I'm attacking it, I'm going to remember it for the future, um, which is sort of how it's supposed to work. Now, um, the, you know, where where can this go wrong is what I'd be asking, because I, I tend to be a black hat wearing, if you've ever read De Bono's different ways of thinking. I, I'm always, I always tend to put a black hat on and say, where could this go horribly wrong? What could go wrong with this? Why, you know, and that, that would be where I would start, which is, I think, where you have to start with things like this, because, you know, what could happen that could make this go wrong? Um, and, you know, 
and we're being reassured that, of course, none of these things that could possibly go wrong can go wrong um, after what giving it to people for about two months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would, um, uh, speaking completely selfishly, I'd quite like to see people take this for about six months anyway before um, before I uh, find myself forced to take it. Um, but, you know, am I in favour of, I think, if, our, if mRNA vaccines, I don't think you'd really call it vaccine anymore, it's almost immuno sort of stimulatory system or something. If this works, it's quite good because it, it doesn't need any additional, you know, we, we you know, an awful lot of vaccines have got an awful lot of gunk that goes into you yeah. at the same time. Adjuvants and you've got to, Adjuvants. I mean, you've you've got to know, grow adjuvant. them. This is synthetic, right, in nature, so in this theory it's easier to make. Completely synthetic, so it should be clear. You know, the adjuvants, this whole idea of adjuvants, if you ask, it, I have asked 10 doctors what they think an adjuvant is, and none of them know, all right? Um, and they're giving vaccines. Uh, an adjuvant, it was, I think they were first given in 1928, was, was aluminium. Why do you stick aluminium in with a vaccine? Because it makes the immune system respond more violently, which is unsurprising. Because yeah. um, <laughs> it's thinking, what the hell is aluminium doing inside the body i'm going to attack it and get rid of it um so it creates a really violent response so if you don't give an adjuvant then the vaccine doesn't create an enormously potent immune response um so and, you're try- and you're trying to regulate how much live vaccine or attenuated vaccine you're given right so if you can dial that yeah. down from a supply perspective and from a overwhelm perspective and layer it with yeah. some adjuvant then you kind of get the blend of an antagonistic means of you know getting the immune system all fired up yeah, but I mean, when they first started using this, no one had any idea what um, what the immune system was. And, and no one had any idea what happened if you stuck aluminium into people regularly. Mm. Um, so so it all started, I mean, because of the science of vaccination, you go, the science of vaccination. Um, it may be quite scientific now, but when it started, it bloody wasn't. It was a you risk, know, yeah. It was a huge risk. I mean, uh, I was reading, you know, listening to something about Jenner, you know, scratching a young child with, Cowpox, um, bits of cowpox out of a young girl who got cowpox, which is incredibly hygienic. Mm. And then later on, scratching him with uh, with smallpox. This eight-year-old child who was the son of his his gardener or something. <laughs> the ethics committee had quite gone for that. <laughs> so it's a, it was quite a guess, really. Um, and and you know, uh, I, I respect that. I respect that we have to start somewhere. It is a chicken and egg oh, yeah. situation, right? So I think you know, science would stop if we said we can no longer experiment science out there in the real world. So I'm not anti-progress, absolutely not. But no. there, there 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 comes a point where you have to look at you have to look at the ethics of trials. Generally speaking, a trial with someone who's willingly putting themselves forward for the, prog- the the progress of science. And, hey, it could go horribly wrong with you and your body. They've done that yes. across 20,000 people for the, the Pfizer vaccine, 20,000 or so got a placebo, a, a real a, um, a proper inert placebo from what I can tell, at least in the Pfizer vaccine. Um, yeah. So that's 20,000 people. We've got seven, you know, seven to eight billion people in the world. They were, you know, for most part, healthy individuals or with stable chronic conditions. Um, there was a mix of age demographic, but we don't really know what the you know what the the case, how much case volume was in each of the demographics. We don't know anything about their lived experiences, any any factors that could confound the situation, their behaviours, the restrictions they were working towards. But moreover, we 
we are now moved with 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 we're exiting twenty thousand people being given a vaccine over a month or so, and we're now going into you know I don't know if this is official official terminology, but phase four. I let's give it to the public and let's continue our science on the people, and that worries me because I don't believe that eighty year olds that are now getting a vaccine today are being told you are part of a scientific experiment. There is so much we don't know, and you're brave for putting yourself forward. And we'll learn. We hope we're not going to cause you any harm because we've seen it in 20,000 people and it seems relatively benign and somewhat effective. But we don't, yeah. we don't know. We don't know if it's going to cause ADE, whether it's going to cause viral interference, whether it's going to cause an autoimmune condition that lasts for decades for you, whether it's going to cause allergies, medical reactions with all the other stuff that you're rattling with. We don't know whether it's going to, what the effect is if you've, priorly had if you previously had COVID-19 infection we don't know whether there's going to be health or functional harms we don't know if you're immunocompromised how it's going to play out we don't know if it produces neutralizing t-cells and antibodies with any level of durability we don't know any of this but take it yeah. please <laughs> what <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling here Malcolm like am I being overly hyperbolic with this idea that we don't we know hardly anything Am I am I naive here in being so concerned? Well, no, I, 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 it's hard to say for sure because um, um, we're, you're right that we don't know it. I mean, normally it takes like eight, ten years to get a vaccine from initial um, research onto the market. Now, uh, yeah, a lot of that time is is faffing around time that you can probably get rid of fifty percent of the faffing about time. But quite a lot of it is is on the fact, you know, the fact that. Um, the AstraZeneca one, or the Oxford AstraZeneca one, they gave it the wrong dose mm. in in uh, in Brazil, and it apparently worked better at a lower at a half the dose. So you think, well, that's the sort of thing that you really should be finding out before you start trying to inject everybody in the world with it. So would it have been would it work better if you had half a half a dose followed by half a dose, mm. or a quarter of a dose, or only one dose, or or what? That's no the dose. Type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> no dose. Yeah, what exactly? Well, that's the type of thing that, that studies are supposed to be looking at, and yet we're supposed to say, "Oh well, we're just going to, we're just, uh, you know, it will get. I'm, I'll guarantee it's going to get approved, um, and, and with a slight delay, and they say, "Well, we, you know, some, some, some fig leaf of why, why they've approved it, even though they got the dosing regime wrong." And as far as I know, the AstraZeneca one in Brazil, the the placebo was a was a meningitis vaccine. Yes. Whereas in Britain it's not, so we have a, a really weird design study that I can see. Is they got the dose wrong? In one country, there's a saline placebo or a, a, a real a real placebo, and in other countries there's not. How, how do you compare these results? You know, that would seem to be two variables in one trial, which means you can't tell anything about a trial to me. You know, the, 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 you're right that we are really it, it's so quick. You know, it you what would you know, should you be worried? Well, of course you should be worried. Um, are these things known? We don't know these things. Could it go horribly wrong? Well, well, yes, it could. Will it go horribly wrong? Well, we're taking a gamble and we've got, you know, we've got an awful lot of what Donald Rumsfeld called, we've got a bunch of known unknowns. And we have unknown unknowns out there as well, I yes. think, with a completely new vaccine where you're taking gen what is genetic material, essentially, and sticking it inside a cell. And then saying, well, that can't get into the host DNA. You know, well, well, viruses get into the host DNA. And RNA viruses get into the host DNA. So why can't a bit of an RNA 
get into the host RNA, DNA. How, how can you be absolutely certain that this cannot happen? You know, it's, um, you know, we, uh, to me, they're, you know, if they could, if they get the sense, say, well, that is, a, that is a valid concern. We are looking at that. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're looking at this. Here's the data. Here's what we're doing. Then I, you know, you were, people like you and I would say, oh, that's quite reassuring. But the fact is they just say it can't, you know. Don't ask that question effectively. It's more which than is, which is where Which is where people like you and I start jumping up and down going, oh, just hold on one Gerstar a minute. You know, <laughs> what do you mean by this? It's, what, it's, it's worse than that because I, I don't know if you've been watching the MHRA, MRHA lady, uh, June Rain, I think her name is, um, who's headmistress-like, very confident, prim and proper, has yeah. certainty in her voice, and you think, well, bloody hell, if, if she's that confident, I mean, how can we not be, right? But she has, with utter certainty, described that zero problem if you've had past, uh, past COVID infection. Um, yes. That, um, it's going to be, it's absolutely safe. We, we can assure you of that. I'm like, she's yes. using very certain words and I'm not saying, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to blow the trumpet here and say, this is mass genocide waiting to happen. I'm not trying to say that this is a major problem and it's going to kill loads of people. But what I can't say is that it won't. Because I, I don't I don't know, because they've not done any of, they've not asked any of the good questions. And a question around the efficacy, I mean, like, I don't know whether you think it's ethical or not, but there's no challenge response. There's no clinical no. control whatsoever here. There's, here's a vaccine. Go live your life. If you get some symptoms, give us a bell. We'll take, we'll take, you know, we'll take a swab. And hey, lo and behold, we use a false positive. You know, it's just, it's just so much nonsense here. There's no clinical control at all. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to be able to look at the efficacy stats and go, why, why are you not using lab cultured virus? Why are you not? Given, given a vaccine, given it the 28 days or so that you need, and then challenging it. Because if you're so certain about the vaccine, then you should be able to give them, you know, a lab, a lab cultured virus and control the process. But instead, you're waiting it for, for it to happen in, in the environment. And we know the environment is heterogeneous and it's not in anyone's control. And then you describe efficacy based on how many people in one group got um, COVID, COVID positive and how many didn't in the other group. But that for me is not efficacy. Efficacy in, I think, the minds of the layperson is, if I take this vaccine, it's going to be 90% effective at stopping the virus from infecting me and getting out of control. That is not yeah. the 90% they're describing. They're just describing proportion, ratio of cases between two groups. Am I right or wrong? Well, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you are right. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. I mean, of course, you know, I, I'm a great, I'm a great, um, one of my great things is looking at um, relative versus absolute risk. And uh, what does that mean with regard to, you know, they're talking about, oh, we, we you know, what most people are unaware of is that um, the AstraZeneca trial is not due to complete the phase three, which is the trial of 20,000 or however many it is, 30,000 people. It's not due to complete until October 2022. That's when it's designed to produce the results. Um, the, the Pfizer study is not due to complete till I think August 2022. I think it's now so, pushed back to Jan, Jan 23. Is it? Well, yeah. so, so, you know, well, you start looking at the figures, of course. Okay, they've given it to, say they've given it to 20,000 people on either side. 
and say one in one in a um, hundred people gets infected, all right, with COVID at the moment. So that's so you got two hundred infections, and of the two hundred people infected, eighty to ninety percent don't get any symptoms, especially in the healthy groups that they tend to be doing it. So you're starting to talk, you're starting to get into figures of like eight people versus one person versus you know we're talking very very small numbers. Yes, because because once you start cutting the numbers down to well, how many people are actually going to get infected? How many people who are infected are going to be severely ill? I mean, none of these studies have as an endpoint overall mortality. They don't. None of them are designed to tell you whether it stops you dying. None of them are designed to tell you whether or not statistically powered to tell you whether or not you're going to get seriously ill. None of the studies will tell us whether or not you you are you are infectious. You will be infectious if you get this the the virus, which is the the three things people want to know about are, will it stop me, you know, uh, spreading the disease? We don't know. Will it stop me getting seriously ill? We don't know. Will it stop me dying? We don't know. However, the, however, Dr. Hillary, well, however, Dr. Hillary this morning <laughs> on ITV said exactly that. He said, I don't know. No, we don't know if it's going to um, prevent transmission. We don't think it's going to stop you from getting infected. But we do know it's going to be preventative to serious COVID infection and death. And I'm like, where are you getting that data from? Where? How is well, he having that certainty? Well, he, he doesn't know. He can't have that certainty because he doesn't know because the trials are not, are not designed to tell us these, uh, these, this information. And, and you might I suppose people, if they hear this, may be thinking, I am just talking rubbish. Well, this is the fact. I mean, I've looked at the clinicaltrials.org website, which is where you can find out the, uh, well, you can find certain things out. You can find out what the outcomes of the study are, what the adverse effects are looking for, what the endpoints are looking for. These things are written down and they can be found at clinicaltrials.gov and you can read them. That is the study. And the study does not include, for instance, finding out if it stops you being infectious, finding out if it prevents um, serious infections or hospitalization or finding out if it prevents you from dying. These are not outcomes that are within the trial protocols. They, and and does that mean... There. Does that mean if it's not specifically stated? Sorry to cut you off there. If it means, if like for example, I looked at the Pfizer uh, clinicaltrials.gov framework, their study design, and there are many uh, primary and secondary endpoints that they're measuring. Oh, yeah. Many, many, many. Um, but if they're not explicitly calling out uh, several, that I'm, I'm thinking, you know what, you should be measuring autoimmunity, so therefore IgG, IgM of different things, you should be measuring. Yeah you know, T-cells, if they're not stating that, is it is it comfortable an assertion to say they're not measuring and therefore we will never know? Well, remember early on in this interview, I told you the thing that you need to look for is the thing that isn't there because that's the most important thing. And in this case, it isn't there. So it's not, if, it, if it's not clearly stated, it isn't there, all right? And um, you can be absolutely confident that if it's not stated in the trial protocol, that is not something they're going to be looking at. So as much as we're, there's this idea of with time, we will know. I'm like, well, maybe not. If you never ask the question, we'll never know. Well, companies are very clean, keen to, once they've reached their predetermined endpoints, to stop the trial dead and say it's been a success. That's, that's what they do. That's, that's, the, that's the game that is played and um, it allows the trial to not go on for so long and you can just say well it was successful we met our predetermined endpoints 
we met them earlier than we thought we would do, mm. and so we've 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 um we've closed we've you know opened the trial protocol and the trial is finished. End of. That's what will happen. That's what always happens. That's what they do. You know, essentially, that's how it happens. That is how the game is played. They're speculating that on the vaccines as well, right? They're saying it's going to be unethical to keep people blinded by the placebo arm. Well, they always do the unethical bit. (laughs) I'm always amused by a pharmaceutical company telling me that they're, you know, they're terrified that they might, you know, they start 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 throwing ethics start start throwing ethics at you. But but what's more ethical is is more ethical giving a challenge response and keeping people blinded. Or te- doing your phase four trials on the public and seeing what happens. Well, which one's more ethical? I'd rather do the. You're signing up to this. You know this is two years. You know you're not getting. If you're in the placebo group, you're not getting a vaccine. Uh, we'll be monitoring you very carefully. You also know if you're joining this study, we're going to give you a vaccine that sh- that prevents infection. But to challenge you with that, we're going to give you the you know the lab cultured virus. So like, if you're going to be in this, we- let's do this. Let's do science properly. But instead, oh, ethics can't allow us to do things that way. And as a result, it just seems to be a really convenient way to escape proper science. I don't know. I, I'm, well, clear, I'm clearly you know, finding stuff that you've seen for many, many years, Malcolm, but I'm exploring it, was, uh, it this year. This is, this, is like, um, this is like, you know, uh, manipulating statistics, uh, page one, paragraph one, you know. <laughs> sort of, um, it's, it's, not, it's, it's what they do. Um, you know, um, They're not. I hate to say this to people, but pharmaceutical companies are, are essentially uh, companies that have a primary focus is to make lots of money, and that's their primary aim in their existences. They are not on earth to improve the lot of humanity. That's you know, if that's a, if that's a side effect, so be it. But that's not what they're here for. And whilst you know they're all jumping up and down and going, it's a wonderful time for humanity. Blah blah blah. I mean that's fine. If the two things are coincide, we have a we have a we have a nice outcome. But but so never fool yourself what these people are are, are about. I'm afraid. Mm. And that's just a, it is a sad reality. Look, I know we're we're drawing close close to uh, the end of this conversation to keep it within a, a reasonable time frame. I did want to close on just a couple of other questions as we round out this this vaccine piece and you know um, wrap a bow around it. Um, I have been following and using as much data as I can to offer some, you know, some level of evidence-based analysis. But of course, I know I'm working with muddy data, and therefore, you can't draw too many conclusions, especially on the COVID-related stats. But I look at excess mortality quite a bit. Um, As we think about um, the effects of the COVID-19 infection itself, so SARS-CoV-2 and the effect it's had on humanity, we then try and tease out of that the lockdown-induced damage or the intervention-induced damage. And then now we've got this third variable, which is the vaccine harm slash benefit. And I'm struggling as I'm thinking about, you know, just rudimentary epidemiology, statistical analysis with data that's in the public domain. I'm trying to think, okay, what's the signal that I will be looking for to help people understand the effect the effect of the uh, of the virus, the effects of lockdown-induced damage, and the effects of the va- the vaccine. Are you studying or looking for or closely monitoring any specific statistics 
And if not, what would they be? So we can all just be a little bit more aware of how to how to measure the effectiveness of our actions over the coming few months, especially as it relates to vaccines. Well, the, the one uh, site that I go to quite often is called, uh, I'm trying to remember, remember what it stands for, it's called Euromomo. Yes. Which is um, which is, is a kind of um, almost just a blind data gathering device that, that was, it was set up to look for things like whether there was a pandemic arriving by looking for spikes in overall mortality, that's death from everything. And um, it, it it looks at 25 European countries, doesn't include all countries, but it, it, it's got parts of Germany, not all of Germany. It's got Sweden and UK and Spain and France and Italy. And anyway, um, what, what's been fascinating looking at that is um, some countries have had absolutely no change in overall mortality whatsoever, like Greece, or I think Romania, um, Austria. At one point, Austria just had a little blip. But some countries had quite major changes in overall mortality. The UK, Spain, France, Italy, uh, Belgium being about the worst. But um, And um, to an extent, these are the days when, I, when we went back and talked about, you know, I was talking about sepsis, how, well, you, you can just say everybody's died of sepsis. And you say, well, actually, the overall mortality hasn't gone up. So what you're doing is you're just shifting your, your diagnosis, you know, what you're saying people died of from one thing to another, um, which really is just um, becomes a bit meaningless. So overall mortality, I think, is, this, is the figure that you need to be focused most on, because when that starts to change, it means something's happening. And, um, and that's Problem the problem is there's tend- three variables, aren't there, that can make that move up, right? There's the virus, there's the lockdowns, and then there's the vaccine. So how yes. do we tease that well, apart? Exactly. Um, so unless it's a major, you know, how do you how do you disentangle these things? Because also there's the well, if a lot of people die early in the year, uh, the technical term which is a bit cruel is harvesting. In other words, there's a lot of people who are very close to being dead. Um, you know, they were circling the plug hole, as some people said, and they just died a few weeks or a few months early. So actually, the the, the mortality for the next year should go down because they died this year and are therefore not going to die next year. Uh, wouldn't have died couldn't have died next year because they're already dead. So so you can see these fluctuations that, that are, are part of this of, of, of the natural move. So it's, yes, uh, how do you do this? Well, um, well, obviously, if we start vaccinating everybody and the overall mortality rate goes up by 50%, we can be pretty certain vaccination was a complete and utter catastrophic failure. Um, I doubt we're seeing, going to see a sign as, as clear as that. Um, you know, what is it with regard to COVID deaths? Well, I think that, um, I think Ivor, you spoke to him, puts it best. It's like skimming a stone. When a virus first arrives, the, the first hop, if you like, is going to be the biggest because no one has any natural immunity. The elderly, vulnerable will, will die off fairly quickly in the first wave. And then the next time it comes around, there will be immunity in the in the community. The first wave of people who died have died so the next wave will be considerably smaller and the wave after that will be smaller and smaller assuming the virus doesn't do something horrible like mutate into something worse so i think what we're going to see is we're, we're having the second wave at the moment i think it would naturally be dying out in about two or three weeks there'd be a month's time anyway so that would be the natural progression of a thing and then it'll there'll be nothing happening it will come back next winter but quite whether or not it comes back with any force i some countries, perhaps, it will the ones that like New Zealand that hid 
um, behind closed doors. Uh, eventually, of course, you've got to open those doors up. But um, so I think um, the answer to that question is the problem is that anyone will be able to interpret it in any way they want because none of the data will be in any way reliable, which is the problem that we yeah. mentioned at the start of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I didn't expect you to give me a silver bullet there. I just, I'm trying to think through how I can support our community who are looking for answers or at least clues. Um, and, you know, we, we, we find many clues, right? There's, there, there's a lot of digging we've done and we found some really interesting observations, both current data and historical data. Um, but it's this, um, this meshing of, of these three variables now that are going to be so difficult to untangle that it's going to, it feels like, as you say, unless there is a catastrophic failure with the vaccines, which I don't believe there will be, um, I think we're going to struggle. And, you know, we, um, with, if you have a COVID positive test, you die of COVID if, if you die within 28 days. Are we yeah. going to have the same rule for vaccines? If you vaccinated, are you going to be considered dying of vaccination if you die within 28 days? I don't think so. So there's just going to be so much muddy water here. Well, it'll be the way around because quite a lot of the studies, they, they stop counting adverse effects from the vaccine after after 28 days. Oh, really? So, yeah. Yeah, that's another one. That's another game they play and say, what are the long-term adverse effects of vaccines? You go, we haven't seen any. Because <laughs> we stopped counting. <laughs> you should stop counting, didn't you? Oh, Jesus. So you weren't going to see them because you just said, oh, that can't be it. It's like I did a study of um, wound infections after surgery at one time. And... Um, Basically, everyone then just played games so that um, if if the wound infection appeared after a certain amount of time, they would say that's not a wound infection, you know, that's something else. Or if they moved from one ward to another, the surgeon will say, well, it didn't happen in my ward, so it's not a wound infection. So essentially, um, you, know, you find that some surgeons had no wound infections whatsoever, and some had like 20% wound infections, and everyone went, oh, look at these terrible surgeons with 20% of their wounds get infected, whereas this fantastic surgeon has none of his wounds get infected. Which I said, I think you'll find they both get exactly the same level of wound infections. It's just that one was counting them and the other one wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll find the same thing with with, um, with vaccination. Is like the counting won't happen, so nothing can occur. You know, you will never see something if it's not there. Um, and that that's another game that gets played. You know, which is uh, which is there are so many games that get played and 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 and. It's impossible to even go through a small percentage of them, but I can assure you that the uh, the companies that manufacture vaccines know every single one of them, and they know how to play that one. And it's um, I say first thing is look for the look look for the thing that isn't there, which is always which is always tricky. And remember that the trick always happens. The, the best magic tricks, as they say, the question is not is not how did you do it, the question is when did you do it, mm. and that's. That's again impossible to spot because often, very often, the trick will have happened long before you even know. You know the magi- magician hasn't even entered the building yet, and the trick has already been done. You know, so um, you, you sound, you sound, and and don't don't think I'm trying to be derogatory, but you sound somewhat despairing, a little bit apathetic to the well, rea- no, no, the reality no, 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 of of no, science. No, no. Are you? Well, bashing away. Well, I, um, I think uh, Richard Horton, who is the editor of the Lancet. Um, now, I can't remember the exact statement, but it goes something like, pharmaceutical companies are so adept at manipulating the data that we, we, cannot, we cannot spot it, all right? 
Um, and he's running you know, the second highest impact medical journal in, in the world. And so, uh, and he's previously said that 50% of the research is, is false. We, the problem is we don't know which 50% it is. And um, I can quote you, you know, Masia Angel, who, who edited the New England Journal of Medicine for 20 years, has basically said, I, I, I no longer believe any of the studies or, or, or uh, research that's coming out. Wow. Um, it, it, which is a terrible, terrible position to be in. Uh, Richard Smith edited the BMJ for 20 years. And if you want to read his views on it, exactly the same and peter doshi as well from bmj he's, it, he's speaking it, out going this is this is it, not science it, it it is not science it is i mean the problem is of course there are plenty of scientists out there trying to do their best there are plenty of scientists who want to find the objective truth um but but the people who've got the enormous budgets and the ability to run the huge trials and and the things that then get published in the big journals are run by by um by by pharmaceutical companies they're the only people that have got the money to do this uh, and they have you know what what is science is to disprove a hypothesis what's the pharmaceutical industry trying to do they're trying to prove, prove. That their drug works yes yeah, they're not trying different. to prove that it doesn't work so they are doing the opposite of science all the time now you can understand they're under huge financial pressures the individuals working for these companies are not corrupt evil people but the pressures are enormous, enormous to prove something works. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I um, currently, I think that the medical research world has reached a point of, um, I'm not quite sure what this point is, if, say, 10% of research was, was, was biased or, or, or corrupted or whatever, then you probably couldn't believe any of it because you don't know which is the ten percent. Um, and I think it's at a higher, uh, considerably higher level than that. Richard Orton says it's at fifty percent. Um, so, so you read a paper and you think, well, you know, what of it? Um, you know, I reached, I reached point now. I can look at the authors and make the decision as to whether I believe anything that I'm reading um, because I've been doing it for such a long time in certain areas. Um, you know, it is, it's. It's, a, it's not a good place that we're in. Uh, what's the, what's the get, how are we going to get out of it? I mean, like, I'm, this is not for you. You haven't got the power or the influence to, to get, get us out of this kind of like death spiral of science at the moment and how it's effectively meshing and tangling itself with policy. And it seems to be just this useful tool to get people to do whatever you want before it was religion and now it's science. Yes. Do we, well, when do we, when what's an the exit? <laughs> Sorry. What's the exit? Um, I think you'll need an absolute catastrophe to occur. Like, say, 20% of people who get this vaccine die or something. Uh, I mean, not on God's earth that I'd ever want anything like that to happen, you know. But but I can't, uh, you know, people might turn around and go, hold on. There's something really going wrong here with the way that we're doing this. Um, but, you know, until something cat truly catastrophic occurs, people are just too happy for it to go on. I mean, I just, just to jump very slightly sideways. The the you know about 15 years ago, they introduced this thing called the Quality Outcome Framework System into the UK, which is GPs were then a vast amount of their income is now spent 
finding out whether people have got high blood pressure and treating it, finding out if people have got high cholesterol and treating it, diabetes and treating it. So there's a vast financial pressure for people to be prescribed more and more medications. And when this was happening, I was actually on the British Medical Association committees for the GPs. I said, we have to be very careful because I think this will lead to multi-pharmacy, polypharmacy. There'll be huge interactions and people will get iller. And I think that we will actually start to see a decline in life expectancy. We now are seeing that decline in life expectancy amongst the elderly in, in America, worse than the UK. So, you know, everyone goes, oh, people are living longer and longer. And I say, that used to be the case. It no longer is. Mm. You know, people are not living longer. Elderly people, particularly, their life expectancies when they reach a certain age are going down. And, um, you know, whether it is cause and effect, whether it is because we're just prescribing more and more and more medications to people, I believe that is playing a very major part in it. And so our our our, our faith in, in all of these randomized controlled clinical trials should be being shaken, but it's not. I think you're right. But we we need we need either a scandal or we need a catastrophe for for something for, for, for people, individuals, personalities, ideologies to be questioned. Um, because until that happens, we, we'll just continue this smoke and mirror kind of hand waving approach of, you know, making the data say whatever you want. So it uh, it is concerning. But um, my last question for you: um, You work in NHS, correct? I'm, I'm guessing you're yeah. not a private. Yeah. yeah. So you work in NHS. I get inundated with comments, generally private ones, uh, some of which are from NHS staff that say, "I, I wish I could say something, but I can't." My, 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 you know, I don't have enough of an income. I don't have enough of a pot to, you know, just potentially cause my, my, my career harm. So I can't say anything, but this smells fishy. I'm not happy with the direction of travel this is taken. But some, some of them have said, I don't like it, but I can't wait to get a vaccine. And I say, okay, go on, explain that to me. She's, and, and they will say, you don't understand how much pressure we're under at the moment. The, the social distancing wards, the enormity of staff absences, whether it be through self, um, self-isolation, whether it be through genuine sickness or people maybe taking the piss out of the system a little bit. Either way, huge absences, um, social distance wards, the stress, the mental stress within NHS is really starting to fatigue us and we're getting the increase of mental stress coming in from the community, both the fear of this and just general... Um, mental health decline plus other other issues that we've kind of caused through lockdown so if i want to do the right job for the people we serve and i want my job to become less stressful more normal we must get vaccinated asap and then i'll go back to them and say is that science that's driving you for that decision as in you have certainty of the vaccine will give you those benefits or is it you just want the policy to change such that you can put your wards back and People, people aren't self-isolating all the time, blah, blah, blah. And it was clear this individual was conflating policy with science for the benefit of her being able to return back to normal and her being able to deliver a better service to the people that she wants to serve. So I can see the pain, maybe the submission or the coercion driving her response, which is, I'll get vaccinated. Let's get this over and done with now. How do you feel about that sentiment working within the NHS? And um, oh, yeah. how would you how would you counsel people that are thinking like that at the moment? Well, I don't counsel people on this area because 
I think it's, it's an individual, individual choice. Yeah, choice. But I think that um, yeah, I mean, I've had an awful lot of people call me individually and say, "What do you think about the vaccine?" and "What are you going to do?" And and whenever when anyone ever asks that question, what they mean is they don't want to take it. They want me to say to them, "It is perfectly safe to take or whatever," and I'm going to take it. I just, which I don't do, but there is a gigantic pressure. I mean, yes, they're, they're saying they're not going to make the vaccine mandatory. Um, but, you know, I said that's a stupid word anyway, because you can make things virtually impossible to refuse without saying they're mandatory means pinning to the floor, being held down by burly men and having injected into you against your will, as if you were, uh, you know, under the Mental Health Sections act uh, that's not going to happen but if you if you say right if you, you can't work for the nhs if you don't get a vaccine you can't go to a restaurant you can't go to a cinema you can't go to a pub you can't go to a gym you can't visit anyone and you can't travel abroad you can't get insured for your car and you can't travel on an airplane i mean it's, what's it's the difference between that and, yeah. what's the difference between that and mandatory yeah. in other words you cannot have any form of, of freedom of life or doing anything you want to do unless you get vaccinated now, as you say, under the under the Geneva, uh, sorry, the Nuremberg Declaration, that is not allowed. That's a basic infringement of human rights. But I think people will go along with it. Uh, and just to finish the whole, you know, I, I've, I've been known to say, I don't care if they give everyone a bloody saline injection, but if then go right now, you're immune. Off you go, because yeah. we've got to get out of this somehow. And the government have painted themselves into a corner. Where the only door, the only exit door, has got vaccine written on it. Yeah, and um, there is no other way out. You know, when when are you going to say to people you don't need to wear masks? When are you going to say to people, you know, you can visit people in their houses? When 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 are you? You know, you know it, there is no way out of this unless they say the vaccine works. So it's going to be approved on, on the on the nod. All of them are going to be approved on the nod, and they're going to be whacked into people. And because COVID, like most viruses, will become less and less virulent as it as it goes on there will be a huge fall in covid related deaths in 2021 and everyone will jump back and say it was to do with the vaccine and, and you'll never be able to prove it was or wasn't one way around and that's that's just the way it is going to be it's just it's, it's sad that people i i sense the submission i sense the coercion because people genuinely whether it be the lay person the general you know the joe public or people working in nhs they're they don't even have to buy into the science. They don't have to buy into the value of of this biologic. They just need to buy into the fact that they can't carry on doing what they're currently doing, and therefore they need an exit. They need a policy exit, and if they have to take action for the policy to change, so be it. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, if, if this goes on very much longer, there will be there will be no economy left. You know, it's it's untenable. It cannot continue for much longer. And so, I think people are saying this is almost like, well, you know, it's almost like going over the top in the First World War, isn't it? Well, I might get machine gun to death, but you know, I, I just got to go because that's the way it is. You know, we we go over the top, we die. <laughs> but you know, how does it end otherwise? There's a fatalism. I mean, I'm I'm, the, I'm one of these fatalistic people you meet, but I'm I'm feeling a bit fatalistic about this myself. I want things to be as safe as possible. They're not going to be, you know. Um, I think we what we got to hope is that in the wreckage, in the aftermath of this war, um, that, that 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 some people can hopefully get together and, and try and make sure that, that you know this the great war never happens again, mm. and we don't have a second world war. But um, 
That's an interesting perspective. You're kind of almost kind of um, concluding this one like done, as in like don't don't fight it, but fight the next one. Maybe. Well, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can fight this one. Uh, it, 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 it's it's fought. You know, science yeah. lost. Um, um, you know, stupidity stupidity won. Science nil. You know, we've got the second half. So uh, you know, let's just make sure that we don't we don't end up with a with a, a treaty that leaves us ready for the next stupidity next time. Think- we have gone. We have to try to to avoid doing such idiotic and nonsensical things again you know but i fear that maybe we need another there's going to be another war to come and yeah perish in that one i know you're being somewhat fatalistic but i sense a level of um optimism perhaps naive optimism to think that people are going to lick their wounds and see this as a as something can that can't be repeated but i fear that in actual fact this will just fuel the egomaniacs and the people with ideologies that this is just you know this is the this is the pov this is the proof case that this kind of thing that managing managing countries and nation states and the globe through biosecurity biosecurity and surveillance is highly effective and you get people to do anything you want so why would we give up that opportunity um, I'm not trying to suggest fabricated viruses and fabricated pandemics, but I do sense an opportunity, opportunism that I don't think is going to easily be given back. So I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit I'm 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 rather negative at the moment, and I don't mean to be because I'm a highly optimistic person. But I'm trying to look for the you know the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm struggling at the moment for for science, but I'm hoping you can bring bring this to a close with some optimism. <laughs> Well, how, how do we how do we give people some hope, whether it be fight currently or some uh, direction on how to navigate things that upset them? Because are, are you are you a person that just goes, "Hey, th- this shit happens, and I've just learned to accept it because otherwise I'll beat myself up." How do you navigate knowing stuff that you don't like and not and knowing you can't change it? What advice well, do you give? Uh, you know, part you look around the world and say, "Is the world a really, really terrible thing for us to live in?" No, there are there are problems with it. You know, we look at modern medicine and research and they say, "Well, we've got, you know, we've got anaesthetics, we've got antibiotics, we've got some fantastic treatments in in hospitals, we've got some brilliant things that go on that, that make people's lives longer and healthier in many good ways than have ever been the case." So we're not attacking. We're not have to attack everything. The entire system. Yeah. The drive behind it is still very positive. Um, what we have to do is is pick our battles very carefully. I mean, I fight the what I call the cholesterol nonsense battles, and we're keeping on fighting. I've seen, um, you know, the the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease is beginning to disappear, and that's been sixty years. Mm. You know, uh, as I say to people, what I'm doing here when I'm looking at heart diseases and, and other things is I'm building a cathedral. And we build a cathedral, it takes 300 years. The people who were working on it at first never expected to see it finished, but they knew that at some point it would be finished and that the bricks that they were putting in and the arches that they were making would at one point be this great structure. And and I think my approach is you just keep plodding away at it. You do what you do. You know you're doing the right things. And and it may not be seen in your lifetime, but you can't you can't expect, you know, you don't get glory out of it. You're not going to get glory out of it. You're going to get pain out of it. You're going to be attacked out of it. 
as long as you know you're doing the right things, eventually the right things will be done. Mm. And everybody will learn from that. You know, you look at people through history, they didn't necessarily change anything at the time in the right direction. It took a long time for these things to move. But when they move, they do move because the underlying drives of most people is positive. Um, there are unfortunately too many people with negative drives who get into positions of power. But overall, I think I think we're going we go in the right direction. So that's my positivity, which is right now this war, this particular war was lost, has been lost. All right, it just has. I mean, but we shouldn't give up. We shouldn't stop telling ourselves what went wrong and why we shouldn't do it again. There's no point in just saying, well, oh well, forget it. We'll never change anything. You know, these things change. The world changes one conversation at a time. This type of conversation people listen to it may do nothing immediately, but it makes a difference and it changes things and things go forward. I know that's the case. That is brilliant. I love that close. That is fantastic, Malcolm. Thank you for for the optimism and the, yeah, the honesty that, you know, life is is about positivity and it is about truth, but sometimes we have to meander through the mess and the mud and the the shit <laughs> until that truth, you know, kind of surfaces. I, I believe that too. And I, and I believe if you're, if you're purpose driven, um, yes, it's, it is suffering. Yes, it's struggle, but there's a, there's a sense of, um, yeah, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning that I think people get. So appreciate that sentiment enormously. Where Malcolm, you've, you, you're, you've got a, a very popular blog and you've got a series of books um, yeah. But where should I direct, or where would you like to direct people that have gone? Oh, I like this. I like this doctor. I want to hear more from him and, and connect with him. Maybe read some of his stuff. What would you, what do you recommend they take a yeah. look at? Well, I've got a, I've got a blog, drmalcolmkendrick.org. You can just go to it. It's on what? It's on our WordPress blog. Um, and I've written um, three. I'm writing another book at the moment, which is essentially what actually does cause heart disease. Um, but I've written um, um, cholesterol con, which is obviously about cholesterol. Doctoring data, which is how to analyze data for yourself and work out who's telling you what and why. Mm-hmm. Written another one, A Statin Nation, which is um, a bit of an update on the cholesterol con. And the current book, um, which at the moment has the working title, Everything You Wanted to Know About Heart Disease, What We're Afraid to Ask. And um, uh, it may end up with a different title. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, so, we can find so, most of those uh, on Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you can just go on. Well, if you go onto the site, uh, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, you can buy the doctoring data, and more of the money goes to the uh, publishers who are my friends, and goes to Amazon, which takes sixty-five percent of the cover price of every single book that Jeez. they sell. <laughs> okay, I'll make sure I point to all of those books and the website. Do you have a, a social media presence? Uh, not really. No, you don't do I that. To, uh, well, I just get dragged in. It's too much of my life is gone. <laughs> and, That's very true. <laughs> okay all right they can look but you're you're active on your blog so they'll they'll get your your latest thinking there right and they can interact with you through comments cheers well thanks very much lovely thank you so much malcolm it has been a true pleasure cheers whoa just before you go i want to know two things from you if you would be so kind firstly how did you find that episode was it insightful was it practical Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. 
And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.